Dear students, welcome to our last presentation on investments. And in this presentation, we are ready for something completely different. <laughs> our first three chapters discussed financial investments. And in this chapter, we will discuss real estate and other investment alternatives. Why? Because not everyone wants to own just mutual funds. This is a chapter that was taken out of the book when they moved from the big book down to the smaller book. And I think it's a little bit unfortunate because this is important to at least know about so that you don't get tricked into any uh, scams. And maybe you do want to invest in real estate and maybe you get involved in one of the other investment alternatives. But for the vast majority of us, no, 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 no. You're going to buy a house maybe someday. So you're going to have some real estate investment, your home, and you can't live in a mutual fund, but you can live in your home. And then some of the others, maybe, maybe, but I'm going to do my best to dissuade you from them. Okay, so let's get started. On slide number two, your home, real estate investments, direct. Well, there are two types of real estate investments. And on the whiteboard in the face-to-face -face class, we would put a big on one side direct and then the other side indirect. <clears throat> a direct investment is something you own directly. An indirect investment is something that somebody else is managing on your behalf. A mutual fund is an indirect investment. Whereas if you buy an individual stock or bond, you are the direct investor. And that's true of real estate also. And as we said, most people are going to want to buy a home, maybe someday, San Diego. Your home is your principal residence. And there's a, it's a legal term that the IRS uses. We'll come back to that later. And as we discussed back in chapter seven, your home is the major asset of most whole households. We, we saw the good tax advantages. They're not great anymore because we saw that the standard deduction is now pretty significant, pretty hefty. And so uh, a lot of people don't even get to use it because of they don't generate as much interest because interest rates are really low. So it's a good tax advantage, and it's been a very good hedge against inflation, especially in San Diego, because typically a home produces an after-inflation return of about 2.5%, 3% a year. San Diego? Uh, no, it's been a whole lot more than that. <laughs> but it is a home first and investment second, in my humble opinion. You will hear otherwise from usually real estate agents and people in the industry. But I think of it as your home first. And people sometimes think, oh, you know, we're going to buy this. And then in five years, we're going to buy something bigger. And then we're going to buy something bigger. And then, you know, life gets in the way. And you really want to move. And this place isn't so bad. And they wind up being there for, you know, a goodly amount of time, 30 years or more. Because then it's no longer a house. It's your home. There are other direct real estate investments, such as a vacation home, and that depends on whether the IRS views it as a rental property. I forget the rules, but you have to be there a certain amount of time. Rental property, dear students, is a whole course unto itself, and we'll just touch on some of the issues involved. But I like to use the term tricky. Real estate 
can be very lucrative, but it's tricky. And what do I mean by that? Remember the PETA factor <laughs> in mutual funds was really low, the pain in the factor? Well, with real estate, <clears throat> the PETA factor is off the scale. And then you may be you may be tempted to buy undeveloped land. Look, that's a very difficult, folks, especially here on the left coast. <clears throat> so I would get involved maybe as a, a in the industry first before you tried developing buying undeveloped land and then someday developing it. Uh, there's an old saying in real estate: don't invest in dirt, because all your money is riding on that parcel of land and there's no cash flow but you still have to pay the property taxes and there's often no guarantee that you'll be able to develop the land it might not be economically feasible no one's going to give you a loan uh it, it, the zoning might change you, you you have to be very very careful plus in san diego all the good land's already been bought up sure you can buy something out by hakumba but how long is it going to take for urban sprawl to get out that far? And <clears throat> with all the fires, <coughs> Sandag is not in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a happy position to let people sprawl out the in. They're trying to infill. They call it infill. They're trying to put more and more housing by the, uh, the major tr transit corridors. The problem is the developers then build something really luxurious. The prices out of the reach of the people who actually use or want to use the, the the transit. So everybody there wants to have their own car. It's a dilemma the uh, urban planners have been fighting with, uh, grappling with for several years and now decades. Slide number four. Now, how about indirect investments? Well, what does that mean, Piano? Look, somebody else is the landlord. Somebody else is handling the the properties. You are just a partner or a member of a syndicate or you buy real estate investment trusts. Now, we made a quick mention of these in Chapter 13 where you could buy mutual funds that invest in REITs, as they are called. I love that word, REIT, real estate investment trust. It's like a mutual fund, but instead of holding bonds or stocks, it's holding real estate. So the shopping centers, the malls, the apartment buildings, the... the, the uh, the major hotels, the the uh, office buildings, warehouses and the like, those are held typically by REITs. And there's legal reasons why. And they're not really corporations. They're trusts. And what's the difference? I don't really know, to tell you the truth. I mean, you take a, you know, if you want to become a lawyer and learn the differences between trusts and corporations and get into all the, we learn a little bit about that in, you know, Business 120, Introduction to Business. But suffice to say, for you and me, they look like a stock. They, they pay dividends. Well, no, they pay fees from operations, which are legally different than dividends, but they look like dividends and you know, they're taxed a little differently. But they're, they're actually, they I've got to tell you folks, one of the best investments our investment club that I belong to uh, was a REIT. And you don't expect them to to really do well. You expect them to be uh, like real estate, you know, slow and steady, a hedge against inflation. And, but this one just exploded, uh, did really well. It was <laughs> coincided with the housing bubble in the mid-2000s. And luckily we sold before the bottom fell out. 
Now, equity sharing is one thing we talked about already. Do you remember the, the parents, the grandparents come up with the down payment, the, the younger adults starting out, they live in the house, they uh, make the payments, keep the place up, and then the four or however many people share in the appreciation of the asset. So it doesn't have to be family, but if it isn't, even if it is, make sure you get a very good lawyer to draw up all the papers because, oh boy, can life get ugly if things don't turn out the way it's expected. And then you can also invest in real estate by investing in first and second mortgages. They're often called hard money for a reason. And these are people who, you know, no way are they going to get a loan from the bank or the credit union for whatever they're doing, buying the house or maybe fixing up a house that basically has been condemned by the city or county. But there are companies that will do the research for you and um, and you can, you know, give them the money. You don't give it to them. You, you invest in them. They do all the paperwork, which is substantial. They monitor the investments. And of course, they have, there's a fee for them. And I was very skeptical until one of my good friends asked me to uh, come with him to a presentation, uh, basically one-on-one -on -one interview, with a woman who was uh, one of the principals in this one company. And I always forget their name because it's almost like it's almost like Fannie Mae's name. It's Federal Home something or other, but that's you know it's not Fannie Mae, folks. It's not. Um, and I, I sat through I sat through her her you know description of it, and my first question was, well, what is your default? Because he knows I you know he knows I'm into this, you know, I'm into finance and the like, so I came with him. My first question was, what is your default rate? She said, well, we have about a little over 200 loans currently, and about two of them are in default, and two more are shaky. And I said, 2%, 2%, any bank would be drooling over that. <laughs> Good for you. She only had 2%, well, actually 1% default rate. The other, the other two, are, she said, were shaky, but she thought they were going to make it. And I said, well, how do you get such a low default rate? She goes, well, we do our research. We're, we're, we don't just lend to anybody and we make sure the property is worth what they, what they say it's worth. We do our own appraisal. We only work here in California. And so I said to him, I said, you know, sounds like a good deal to me. And he did very well with them. He was getting 10% on one of his loans and 9% on another one. Not bad. And I always thought maybe I should take some money and send it to them, but I haven't done it so far. And then once a person makes it into the big leagues where they're paying a lot in taxes, one of the choices is in low-income housing. At first, it's primarily a tax credit uh, or a deduction, but, but usually credits because you're trying to help the community by investing in these low-income housing. But if it does well, eventually it's going to become a real estate investment and it will be like the others. But primarily at first, it's a tax credit and it usually takes many years before they start to turn a profit. Slide number five. How about commercial property? <laughs> Here in San Diego, oh boy, you know, it's just forget it. The prices have just 
God, you think residential real estate has gone up? Where do you see the prices for a commercial? You know, start with a duplex, maybe a small apartment building, but even those are in the millions of dollars now. Hotels, office building stores, forget it, forget it, folks. Um, downtown San Diego, you know, 25 years ago, 20 some years ago, you could buy a, a storefront for a million dollars. Now you couldn't touch it for eight, nine, ten million dollars. Uh, my buddy, who's much more aggressive than I am, in the mid nine lately, it was like ninety six or so, ninety seven. He was trying to, for, he was going around to everybody trying to get us to pool our money and buy the uh, the the hotel on Newport Avenue in Ocean Beach because we live in Ocean Beach. Because it, it needed a lot of work. <laughs> but, you know, it was like four, I forget the exact number, 440000 You couldn't touch that place now for under $4 million. I, I, you know, they had to, whoever bought it had to fix it up. It's, it's now a hostel. And I'm not sure exactly what they're going to do with it because uh, I read something where they're, they're you know, they, they, they've been affected by the COVID. I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen, but forget it. They're just, it's just, yeah. Now, where can you do it? If you go to a middle part of the country, maybe even Arizona, New, Nevada, New Mexico, but here, forget it. You know, I was really gung ho. I kept telling my wife, we have to buy some commercial property because we've been, we've bought some residential and it worked out okay. So we, I started looking in Tijuana and, uh, the prices there have gone up, but they're still within reach. But I was told in no uncertain terms by many people, stay away. You're not even a citizen of Mexico. But if you do buy res re real estate there, especially commercial, you start up a corporation. You don't do one of the uh, bank uh, trusts, which is what people do when they buy a home. You start up a corporation in Mexico, and in four years, you can apply to become a citizen of Mexico. And I really, really, I was gung-ho just a, you know, a couple years ago or so. And then I heard a lot of <laughs> horror stories and talked to a couple of lawyers who said, yeah, don't worry about that. And I thought, and then somebody told me, you know, the lawyers are the most corrupt people in Mexico. I said, oh, come on, this guy didn't seem that bad. And um, I just, uh, I've never done it. I've never done it. And I probably never will, especially because my wife thinks I'm crazy, which she's right. So uh, the book tells you and other people will tell you, look for income to be greater than expenses. Yeah, great advice, guys. But don't be surprised if you're looking at negative cash flow for several years. The rule of thumb is if you can get seven to 10 times rent for the price that's a good deal. So in other words, if you could get, say, $3,000 in rent a month, that's about $36,000. If you could get a place for $360,000, that's not a bad deal. But what can you get for $360,000 here? A very small condo, and you're not going to get $3,600 a month in rent. So, <clears throat> authors and rule of thumb. But if you are so inclined, the bargains, if there are, are in the South Bay. Or if you go out to Hacumba or Boulevard and, yeah, okay, you got the idea. San Diego is very, very difficult. How about fixer-uppers? Again, San Diego is very, very difficult. You're up against some of the best real estate investors in the world. But if you were to go somewhere else, concentrate on smaller properties first, maybe a duplex, 
you know, two units, live in one, fix up the other, then rent that out. Look for low down payments and seller financing of rundown properties. What does this mean? These people have had this place for decades and one of them maybe passed away. The other one wants to sell and, and the place is kind of run down. Well, the banks don't want to lend on it because it needs a lot of work. So you talk to the seller and say, look, here's my down payment. I will now pay you as if I were paying the bank. Expect to pay a little bit more in interest, but you know they're trying to get rid of the property. So if, if nobody else steps forward, you might be able to do it. Because as we said, banks are usually very reticent to loan to a distressed property. However, if it's on their books, the person has has foreclosed, a person has left and they've foreclosed, they are all too happy to finance it because they're not in the real estate business. They want their money. They want their interest. My humble opinion, folks, is to stay away from property managers. Not that there aren't good property managers. There are, but nobody cares about your property as much as you do. You And they take usually 10% of the rent and they're very often quick to try to get rid of, of uh, tenants which is something that, you know, we don't try to do. We try to get good tenants and then charge them less than, um, than uh, the going rate because then they, first of all, they love you. They appreciate you. One woman, when she was sure I was going to raise the rent, she, and I, I said, no, no, I'm here for something else. And she gave me a big hug. <laughs> I said, oh, thank you. <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, real estate is tricky, folks. You're dealing not with just stocks, which are inanimate objects. You're dealing with tenants, which are people. And as we said, as we just mentioned, it is very important to not only deal with the repairs, but deal with the renters. Because fixing a tenant is just as important as fixing a toilet. You know, overflowing toilet can cost you a few thousand. A bad tenant can cost you 10000 And I just heard from a very reliable source, a woman who runs a business in, in, Hill, in North Park, who I've known for many years. We just went back there. She has it as a, 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 a rental in Hillcrest. And the tenant, I have a hard time believing this, but the tenant that she finally got out racked up $34,000 worth of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and you saw the nightmare. The, the the I hope you saw in chapter seven the the landlord's nightmare where the whoever it was drove their motorcycle into the living room and yeah. Um, you if you are so inclined, I really recommend anything that Jay DeSima wrote. I only read the one, but he has he's written other ones, and he's he's really sharp. He's funny, and I. I he does his own, as it's called, sweat equity. He puts his own life into the into the work. And uh, he says, uh, install a white picket fence. People love a white picket fence. And he did the, uh, the cute thing where the house, the foundation was settling, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but the house looks a little tilted. So when he, when he replaced the doors and windows, he tilted all the doors and windows so that the house looks straight up and down cute nothing new folks look at the leaning tower of pizza the italian engineers did it 400 years ago as the thing started leaning as they were building it they tilted the top didn't help too much but check it out next time you look at the leaning tower of pizza okay so have a lot of fun if you're getting going to get involved because it's a lot of work 
What are the advantages of real estate? Well, it's a hedge against inflation, as we said, and there's what is called financial leverage. Remember we said that real estate turns about a seven, eight percent, and the real estate agents and the real estate people say, no, he's not he's not he's not comparing apples to apples. And I told you they were right. We're gonna do that in a bit. So just stick with us. You get to use borrowed funds to help you acquire a more expensive property than you would on your own. In other words, you use leverage. You're using those borrowed funds as a funds as a lever to increase your uh, gain. But <laughs> it also increases your loss. For real estate partnerships, there's easy entry, sometimes not so easy to get out. And um, you have limited financial liability as a limited partner. And there's no management concerns. Same thing with REITs. And one of the cool things about real estate, I always thought, was you just can't check the price of your real estate investments every day on the Internet, which is one of the major problems with stocks. You sit, people will say, I'm in it for the long term. And they're always checking their phone or going to their computer to see what happens. Oh, it's up 25 cents. What should I do? Oh, it's down 50 cents. What should I do? Well, now actually you can check your price. It doesn't change that often on Zillow, Trulia, and and don't they're just ballpark rate figures, folks. It's not until you put it on the market when you actually find out what it's worth. And what are the disadvantages? Well, liquidity, liquidity, right? Liquidity is the issue in real estate. It may be difficult to sell your property. It may be difficult to get out of the partnership because you can't find anybody to buy your share. It's not a problem with REITs because they buy and sell like a stock. And normally there is that lack of diversification. When you buy a single property, well, that all your money's riding on that property. But of course, REITs, partnerships offer diversification. Now, uh, we're not going to get into the tax ramifications, but when you make money off of uh, real estate, that's called a passive uh, income, and um, especially with the, those syndicates and the like. And you can't use passive losses, or there's a certain amount that you can use against active uh, income, which I'm not a real estate uh, lawyer or a tax CPA, but but uh, just know that there's there's it's treated differently and, and some losses have to be sheltered against uh, gains. And then as we talked about the PETA factor, management, tenant problems, whoa. And property values can decline, folks. Yes, they can, and as we saw in 2008 and 9, But before that, people were saying, no, property's never gone down in the past. But uh, uh, excuse me. Come on, Piano, admit it. Real estate is the perfect investment. Well, that's what they were telling us you know, in the mid-2000s. Beware the permanent trend. Andrew Tobias. Real estate goes up and down in cycles. Ask those who bought it in 1990, if they're still around, and sold in 94. Yeah, real estate went down then because there was a, a big run-up in the 1980s and then a recession and many of the uh, California industries like defense were hit hard. And those who bought in 2006 and went through foreclosure during the Great Recession. Real estate seems to be finally back on its feet. COVID notwithstanding, if you plan to hold for the long term, if you want to live here in San Diego, you should do well, in my humble opinion. It's not as if San Diego is becoming less desirable. By the way, as I hope you understand, there's no perfect investment. Every investment has advantages. Every investment has disadvantages. In the late 1990s, stocks were the internet stocks were the perfect investment and 
until they fell 94%. But what about leverage, huh? What about the ability to make money with other people's money? I already told you about that, didn't I? But isn't that what makes real estate such a great investment? Well, yes. Yes. Remember when we talked about make love, not loans, and we really don't like debt? Well, when it comes to real estate, that goes all out the window. <laughs> yeah, debt, you live with debt. It's just part of the game, unless you're not taking this class because you're incredibly wealthy and you have plenty of people to do all your investing for you. Let's look at the two problems in the older book that illustrate the power of leverage. Now, these were from our old Business 121 textbook, which was written in around 2004 and 5, when prices were going up 20% a year, 10, 20% or more a year in real estate, which is very unusual, folks. Calculating the return on investment. This is the worksheet, and these are not going to be on the, on the, on the exam. Okay, you got it? They're not going to be on. They're not going to have to go do them on the exam. But you can get out the worksheet and if you want, or just follow along here because it's pretty straightforward. So he bought a rental property for $200,000 cash. Now, how many people have $200,000 lying around the house, right? One year later, he sold it for $240,000. So what is the return on his investment? Well, if we do the calculations, and you probably can't see them if you're looking at this on your phone, but, but it's the selling price minus the initial price, what we brought to the table, 240,000 minus 200,000, which is $40,000 return. That's our absolute return. But what is our percentage return? Well, we brought to the table the 200,000. So we take the 40,000 divided by the 200,000 and we get a 20% return on our investment. It cost us 200,000 to make 40,000. A very good return. Anybody would be very happy to make this amount. But here's the key about real estate. Did Dave come up with the two, whole, whole 200,000? No. In those heady days, you only needed 10%. So let's say, suppose, we, this is using financial leverage. Let's suppose Dave invested only 20,000 of his own money and borrowed the 180,000. That's 90% financing. This is not allowed anymore on investment property. They want you to come up with at least 25%, not 10%. He only put up 10%. So let's look at the numbers. He made the same absolute return, $240,000 minus, I'm sorry, not divided, minus the initial price of 200,000. That's a $40,000 absolute return or dollar return. But remember, he only had to bring $20,000 to the table, as we say in the industry. So he made $40,000 on a $20,000 investment. That is a 200% return on your investment. And this is what was happening. This was, you know, 15 years ago, 14 years ago. They were building these condos down in San Diego uh, uh, City, and all you know, other other parts of this of the, of the county, but the the condos were the real egregious ones. You could put your down payment of twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars nine months before the darn thing is even finished, and then by the time it was finished, you didn't even have to move in. You could turn around and sell it for an extra forty, fifty thousand dollars. So you. It's free. It's not. Free. It's either free, but it's pretty darn close. Hurry up! They're giving away. Come on, run down. You do it too. 
And as one economist I heard said, no, it's not like one economist. It was, um, I forget who it was. One of the uh, industrialists said, and they uh, about 100, over 100 years ago, there is nothing more dangerous to your finances, to your financial health, than watching your neighbor get rich on the latest uh, <laughs> get rich quick scheme. So, you know, that goofball down the street who, 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 who uh, whatever he does, he's not very smart. He's making thousands of dollars every year. Me some too. Ahem. Yeah, it's musical chairs, folks. It's tulip bulbs. It's uh, it's um, it's the greatest uh, and latest and greatest way to lose a ton of money because eventually the music stops, and you hopefully are not one of the people left holding the bag. So let's take a look at the um problem that was conveniently left out of the previous textbook because it hadn't happened yet. The music was still playing. So calculating the return on investment, and I used 666, folks. It's a joke. It was, you know, it's not it's, it's a joke, and I hope anybody takes offense by it, but that was the number of days. The person who wrote Revelation also wrote the uh, the uh, Gospel according to John, and he was saying that, that 666 was the mark of the beast. Well, the beast was was Rome. If you look, if you read it, it's basically he's symbol he's symbolizing Rome. And he said it's only 666 days until Rome falls. He was only off by about 300 years. Anyway, uh, calculating the return on investment using financial leverage and things don't go as planned. Suppose Dave invested only 20,000 of his money and borrowed 180,000. That's 90% financing. And now the property value went down 20%. Now the question is, what's he going to tell his wife? That's the real question here, because um, we do the math. We take 20%, dollars times 20%. It's a $40,000 drop in value. So now the property is only worth $160,000. But he still owes $180,000. Remember, negative equity underwater. If he runs into a problem now, he doesn't own any more of his his house. That $20,000 is gone, and he owns owes an extra $20,000 more than the house is worth. If he tried to sell it, the bank would say, sure, you can sell it, but you got to give us $180,000. He would be tempted to do what a lot of people did in the Great Recession. Because remember, we saw housing drop more than that, not 20%, 50 or more percent. We saw that $570,000 Duplex go down to 225. So what is he going to tell his wife? Uh, honey, we have a problem. <laughs> and that's why a lot of people just walked away. Now, if he held on in San Diego, at least, we see that those prices have come back. But what if his renter trashed the place? Meaning he has $12,000 or $15,000 of, of uh, repairs just to get it so he can rent it again. Do you see why we call real estate tricky? Because <laughs> although stocks will fall 50%, you, yeah, you you just walk away because you you know you can sell it still, but you walk away and you've made a made a big loss. But here you're stuck with this property, and also if you do walk away, you go through foreclosure and it ruins your record. And some people went through bankruptcy, and yeah, real estate is tricky. Can be very profitable, but it is tricky. Okay. 
Now, I included these, and we really, sh I don't even, sh I shouldn't even tell you this because it's true. You can do it. Some people say, well, can you get real estate in an IRA? Yes, but don't do it. It's, it's, it's not prohibited, but there are strict, complicated rules. And if you screw up, you, there are huge penalties, anywhere from 15 to 110 percent. There are few knowledgeable regulated trustees and advisors. You need an experienced trustee. Who's the trustee? The trustee is the is the entity, company, whatever, that actually holds on to the property. Now, remember, don't worry, your name is, you know, it's your property, but their job is to make sure you don't do anything wrong and go run afoul with the IRS. But it's a very difficult job, so they have high operating expenses and fees. It cannot be your home or your business, nor your parents or your children's home, but it can be your brothers or sisters. Figure that one out. So you can't keep it in the family somehow. You must have sufficient cash in your account to perform any necessary transactions. If you write a check to pay for that property tax outside of the IRA, oh, I don't even want to know. I don't even. I don't even want to think of what's going to happen to you. The trustee is going to be very, first of all, they're going to be jumping up and down screaming at you. Don't you realize what you just did? And if you go over the annual maximum contribution because you have to de deposit more cash into your IRA, then you're going to be penalized 6% per year on the amount over deposit until the rent comes up to the point where you can take the money out. Do you understand what I'm talking about? No, then don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and for this reason, often people pool their IRAs, but that's normally forbidden. So, again, you have to find somebody who knows what they're doing and don't expect it to be cheap. Because I certainly wouldn't want to take on that responsibility. I have no idea how to do this stuff. A CPA and a tax lawyer is probably what you're going to need. The advantages can be dubious. Investment real estate often has some of the same advantages as, as an IRA without any of the constraints of an IRA. And capital gains taxes are deferred until you sell the property, which not may not be until retirement. You may never sell the property, in which case your, your heirs will receive the property at that current rate. They won't be taxed on the capital gains that you would have been taxed if you had sold it. Income is usually negative or minimal for years, so who cares? You're not paying income tax on income that's negative. And real estate can offer many tax deductions, which you would not get inside your IRA. And capital gains on real estate can currently be eliminated if you simply live in the property for two years before you sell it. Remember the principal residence rule? $250,000 for single and five hundred thousand dollars married, you buy a house couple for two hundred thousand. You could sell it for seven hundred thousand and not pay any capital gains taxes. Very cool. Or the advantages can be compelling. And I know one person who has done this, but he's he's very well off. Don't don't think you're going to do it. He was able to buy from the proceeds of his Roth IRA. Um, he had done so well in his Roth IRA. He was able to actually able to buy rental income, and that means. All the income he gets from that property is tax-free. Pretty cool. <laughs> but, you know, it's he has a reputable uh, uh, trustee that's taking care of all the paperwork. And, of course, we said you, you can't, yeah, I won't forget that. Okay, so slide number 18. Wait, wait a minute, Pina. Wait a minute. Did you say there are no capital gains taxes on real estate? Well, as the law stands now, 
as long as your real estate is your principal residence for two out of the last five years, you pay no capital gains tax on the first $250,000 if you're single, $500,000 if you're married. So what does that mean? You have a rental property for 20 years. Then you live in it for two years. You're not going to pay any capital gains taxes. Well, it's not that simple, actually. You have to take into account the depreciation and the clawback. But uh, you talk to the CPA because if you're doing that, you better get somebody, you know, real estate lawyer, uh, CPA, enrolled agent, somebody who's, you know, powerful when it comes to taxes. And also, if it's your primary residence, you can't deduct losses because it's your home first, your investment second. And notice that the property must be your principal residence. And what does this mean? Well, if you own two or more properties and you frequent each regularly, the IRS can rule that none of your properties is your principal residence. They got away with this. A couple, now these are you know, very wealthy people, so don't feel too sorry for them. They had a property, I think, in Wisconsin, one in Florida, and one in Arizona, as I remember the story. And they moved around. They never stayed in one place. So they sold one, and they said, that's our principal residence. The IRS, IRS said, nope, no, it's not. It's none of your resident, properties are your residence. And the couple sued, and they lost. <laughs> the judge said, yeah, the IRS is right. So on the IRS's website are a list of some of the questions. Do you work there? Do you have your driver's license? Do you vote there? You know, that kind of that kind of stuff. So I don't you check it out. If, you, if you're in that enviable position of having three different residences, make sure you talk to somebody or do do your own research. Okay, okay. Now, when you <laughs> slide number 19. When you first heard we're going to talk about investments, I know a lot of you thought, "Oh, gold. We're going to talk about gold." You want to buy gold? Go buy gold. Eesh, don't do it. Don't do it. Why? Cuz first of all, where are you going to store it? You're going to hide it in the house somewhere? Bury it? You're going to put it in a safety deposit box? Folks, you, if, 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 if the reason you believe that you need gold is because... Yeah, here it is. Here, let's read Tom Petruno because he said it best. Huh? If your reason for owning gold has something to do with the end of the world as we know it, shotguns and canned food probably would be more practical investments. But if you really believe the world economy is going to fall apart soon, sure, buy a lot of gold, but get out of the Northern Hemisphere. Go down to Tierra del Fuego or Tasmania and learn to raise goats and uh, and, and grow sorghum and wheat and barley. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you, you know, all the gold you own is not going to help you if the, if the, if the technologically-based civilization falls apart. There are ETFs that will invest in gold for you. But again, you have to make sure that they're on the up and up because there's been a lot of scams where people thought they were buying gold, but what they were buying was lead with gold paint on it. Um, silver? Now, what, first of all, what is gold good for? What is gold? What is it? it it's a very beautiful element. It's gorgeous. If you look at those gold coins, they're beautiful. But what is it used for? There's not too many uses for gold anymore. It's one of the best conductors in uh, in electricity. So, you know, your your cell phone might have a few tiny bits of gold and some very important uh, uh, parts. But no, they have they have other things that work 
almost as well, and it costs a lot, a lot cheaper. It's still rest off you can fart in your mouth. The dentists love it. They, you know, it's still the still the bed. They well, that's what they'll tell you. That oh, there are other things that are just as good, but the but dentists will tell you the truth. They'll tell you the gold is still the best thing to, for your for your teeth. And jewelry, of course, jewelry. But that's about it. <laughs> so so sure, uh, buy gold. Look at it; it's gorgeous, and someday it's going to be worth something because people will always buy it. But hang on a minute, because we're going to take a look at how gold is done next to stocks and bonds, and and realize that gold is not the best of investment. Now, silver actually might be why, because silver still has many many uh, industrial applications for which it is used. So there will be always a need for it, and the price might spike it, and you could probably sell it higher than what you purchased it. But again, it, there's no interest like gold. There's no rent. There's no cash flow. It doesn't grow. It doesn't make new products. It doesn't invest in, in new technologies. doesn't move into new markets. And the biggest use of silver is gone. Film. Yeah, and the little yellow boxes, Kodak, all around the world are no longer there. What about platinum, palladium, rhodium? Well, these three actually are very important in certain industrial applications, specifically uh, uh, the, the catalytic converter in your car and, and fuel cells and the like. So those are actually something that might be worthwhile to hang on to. But again, where are you going to store them? And so when people tell me, jump up and down, tell me they want to invest in gold, I show them this graph, which we use in Business 121, Introduction to Investments. And it shows you what happened to a dollar's worth of investments starting back at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution when the economy started to expand at exponential rates. And that's what this is. It's a logarithmic scale. So a straight line is actually a big it, it it makes a huge exponential curve into a straight line. That's what logarithms do. And that's why we shouldn't use them because people don't understand. <laughs> but look at that. Look at that. Gold does well when people think the world is going to end. Civil War, you know, Great Depression, World War II, and then 70s when the uh, 1970s when inflation went up. But look at the look at what a dollar of his stocks has done. That's how huge our economies are now. Because they mirror this economy. Bonds have done okay, but <laughs> there's opportunity costs. Treasury bills are basically inflation, right? Um, they beat inflation a little bit. And there's the consumer price index. And gold has you know, beaten the consumer price index, but not by much. In fact, gold is pure speculation. What does that mean? There's no intrinsic value to it. Other than those few applications that really aren't that important because there are other things that we can use. Uh, gold is worthless. <laughs> it doesn't pay any interest. It's not really used for much of things, except for jewelry, which people will buy, buy I guess. Um, it doesn't, as we said, go into new markets or, or new, new technologies. And look, you've got to know when to buy and when to sell. Could, that's called speculation. Because in 1980, 1981, gold hit $800 an ounce. For 20 years, it slid and slid until finally it hit $250 an ounce in, at the end of the 1990s. And then in the 2000s, when we had the, the first the internet bubble bursting and then the Iraq war and then the housing bubble, it's, 
it went up to about $1,700 and then went back down to $1,100. And now it's, I forget where it's about $1,300 or so. So you've got to be able to outwit the greater fool. <laughs> it's called the greater fool theory. Somebody out there is a greater fool than I am and will pay more than what I paid for it. And you, you may do well doing that. You might do well playing that game. I wish you a lot of luck, but you're not an investor then. You're a speculator. You're a trader, T-R-A-D-E-R. Not trader, folks. Not you're, not questioning your patriotic uh, 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 duty. I'm saying you're a trader. You trade these things because in and of itself, it's worthless. Slide number 21. Speaking of worthless, <laughs> precious gems are even worse. Diamonds, folks. Diamonds are not uh, that scarce. In fact, they make diamonds now. Huh? Yeah, you can set what are diamonds made out of? They're made out of carbon, which is what we're made out of, which is what most all, all organic um, things are made out of. And the reason they're diamonds is because they've been subjected to millions of pounds of pressure over thousands or millions of years in, in volcanoes and the like. But we can do that too. We can take carbon and turn it into a diamond. So if uh, you have a favorite kitty that has gone to meet their very re their great reward or doggy or aunt tia uh, tia rosa or whoever and she she dies and is cremated you can take some of those ashes send them off to a company and they will send you back a diamond <laughs> you look it up you don't believe me look it up diamonds from pets diamonds from loved ones and they're not cheap, but they're a whole lot cheaper than natural stones, which are identical to the ones that we create ourselves because we do the same thing that Mother Nature does. Yeah, don't invest in precious gems. There are some that uh, you know will will command tremendous right prices, but you and I are not going to be involved in that market. And then what about collectibles? Beanie Babies, books, antique cars, sports memorabilia, baseball card collections. It can be a really fun hobby and an investment. You might actually make some money or it can be a financial disaster. There was a guy, this is many years ago, out in El Cajon, El Cajon, excuse me, who claimed that he had $50,000 worth of Barbie dolls sitting in a lockup, you know, in a storage location some somewhere in El Cajon. And, and one weekend, they all disappeared. So, yeah. I often thought about buying art, and I bought a couple pieces that actually have increased in value, but not much. You know, it's not a whole lot. Last time I checked, they had gone up somewhat. But it only takes one. If you really know the art world, and you find somebody somebody's... Uh, basement or attic or something like that at a yard guard sale and you say that's uh, thomas kincaid that thing is worth tens of thousands of dollars and he sells it to you for 50 bucks but i like to think about christie's auction christopher berg hey who started a berg i'm not sure how you say his name but he said don't buy art as an investment buy art because of what it does to you how it makes you feel and think and and the joy it brings you or the the, the sadness it lets you feel uh, from the artist's um, perspective. Uh, 
but don't expect to make a lot of money off it. You will hear people yell and scream and holler that fine art is the greatest investment ever. And they're absolutely right, but not for us. These are pieces that, you know, they're, they're, they're already pretty expensive to begin with. Unless you know, unless you know the art well so well that you're going to be able to, um, to, uh, buy the stuff before the artist dies <laughs> and then it actually will become worth something. I remember going to a, uh, I almost bought one too. I, I, my kid, my son was very young and the kids were still really rampaging. I thought I'm not going to buy something worth $700, put it on my wall and have them throw ketchup at it. But it was, uh, the guy who, uh, Chuck Jones, he was one of the animators for, for, um, for Warner brothers, Looney Tunes. He was still alive. This was in the early nineties. And he uh, was selling his artist, his work there at the gallery in Old Town. And he was funny. He was a funny guy. He was in the 90s. And he goes, now you should buy this stuff right now because I'm going to kick off soon. And then that's when it's going to be worth something, you know. You have to wait until the artist dies before it's worth anything. And he, I just laughed at that. And I thought about that. And I almost bought, this was in the early 80s, a uh, John Lennon, which I really liked. It was a print. No, what did he do? He did lithographs, right? He was John Lennon was also an artist. He had started out as an artist, and his stuff was different, very different, and kind of interesting. And there was one I really liked, and I almost bought it. It was eighteen hundred dollars, and I th and he had just passed away. And I think okay, the prices must have you know gone up tenfold. And I thought, well, that's going to be worth something, someday. So, but it was a lot of money back then. Now eighteen hundred dollars back in the early eighties was a lot of money. I was I was young. I was very young, and. Um, I was going to, you know, have to buy it and make payments. And then I didn't do it. I'm glad I didn't do it because his art now is not worth very much at all. That $1,800 payment uh, uh, print or whatever it was, lithograph, probably worth like four or 500 You see? But if I had bought his guitar, <laughs> John Lennon's guitars are now selling for $180,000. So, you see, you, you got to pick the right part of the... <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't think to buy his guitar. I would have bought his art and I wouldn't have done this very well. So there you go. Uh, how about mm, taxes? Well, do you think the Congress is trying to tell you something, folks? Because the maximum capital gains on taxes of most all financial and real estate investments is 15% for the vast majority of 20% for if you got a whole lot of money. But on art, precious metals, collectibles it's 28 percent. i think cars are only 15 to 20 percent. i think cars don't fall into that and you can't put these things into an ira well there's a way you can put gold coins but they have to be united states gold coins golden eagles not the uh, anybody else's but other than that you can't put them in an ira thinking the, the congress is trying to tell you don't invest in these things Okay, all right, finally we get to the thing that the young folks want to talk about, and that is cryptocurrencies. <clears throat> Got to be careful. I can talk about investments a lot longer than most people ever want to listen, so this is going on a little longer than I thought it would. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, like gold, are pure speculation. You must buy low and sell high. But they're even worse because they're, with gold, at least you can make jewelry out of it and use it for some applications. But these things have no intrinsic value. It's, they're not based on anything. They're just simply based on the fact that somebody says they're worth it. And so 
worth this amount because they put that much money down, hoping that somebody else is going to buy it at a higher rate. However, the technology behind cryptocurrencies, which is called blockchain, is valuable. That will survive. And I just love Stephen Colbert. You know, the, 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 uh, you know who he is, right? He runs the, one of the late shows at night. He calls it gold for nerds. <laughs> and that's exactly what it is. It's just like gold. It's the greater fool theory. And what I hear people, you know, especially if they're not in class, in the class they don't want to, they don't want to tell the instructor that he's out out to lunch. But come on, Payano, what you got against Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies? You're just old. That's all. This is the future. We're all going to get rich, rich, rich. Not so fast. Okay, here's my rebuttal, and you take it for what it's worth, folks. You might decide you want to dabble in these things. First of all, as mentioned, you can't invest in a cryptocurrency. You can only speculate. The value is worth only what others believe it is worth. They don't pay interest, dividends, rent. There's no cash flow. There's no new products or anything. And most importantly, there's nothing backing the currency. And what when I say that, that's when they come back and they say, but what about fiat currencies, huh? Aren't, aren't they all the same? Fiat currencies are the currencies that every country uses now. It's not backed by gold or anything else. It's backed by the full faith and, and, and credit of that economy. Aren't the fiat currencies worth something because we believe they are? Because we believe a dollar is worth something? That's the reason it's worth? No, not so fast. You will hear people say that our dollars are, and other fiat currencies are not backed by gold and are therefore worthless. This is poppycock. You like that word, poppycock? It's not true. By the way, what is gold worth? As we saw, gold also as an investment is not an investment. It's a speculation. Our dollars are backed by our economy, the great American economic machine. Our dollars are backed by what the United States can produce and consume, what is called our gross domestic product. Walk into any grocery store, look around, and then you tell me that our dollars are worthless. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's one of those things where it's staring us in the face and we just think, oh, the dollars are worthless. I say, okay, okay here we are. I'll give you a bag. You go down to the bank, put all the dollars in the bag. I'll take it away from you. You don't have to deal with it anymore. Is that a deal? Uh -huh. The job of the Federal Reserve Bank is to make sure that there are enough dollars in circulation to match the production of our economy with the consumption of our economy. Too many dollars, you get inflation. Too few dollars, and our economic output is stifled and opportunities for growth of our wealth are lost. It's not an easy job. I love it when I hear people scream, end the Fed. Oh, yeah, well, you could do a better job. Now, I'm oversimplifying, and if you really want to learn more about this, take economics, become an economics major, and you can tell me why I was too oversimplified. But it's, this is the general idea. So now, how does this relate to cryptocurrency, and how do you explain the success of Bitcoin? Well, there is absolutely nothing to stop other individuals or groups from starting their own cryptocurrencies. And that's exactly what happened a few years ago. There were over 2,000 cryptocurrencies at the height of the bubble. The one I loved the best was the Jesus coin. It, look it up. It's, it's morphed into something different. But at first it was a cryptocurrency. But it, it was for you know, those who believe. You know, it was tulip bowl made mania all over again. 
Eventually, the bottom fell out, and some other some people got very rich. Many others lost a whole lot of money. But it's not over yet. Some are still screaming. Soon, one Bitcoin will be worth twenty-five thousand, or a hundred thousand, or even a million dollars. There are only so many Bitcoin, and then then the price will skyrocket because eventually, all the Bitcoins that are can be in existence will be in existence, and they can't make any more. And I guess that's true of some of the others. Only a few are going to survive. Again, if an item has no intrinsic value, it does not matter what the supply of them is. They, are still, they still have no intrinsic value except for whether greater fools will pay for them. You know, I wish the cryptocurrency fans much luck because they're going to need it. Some of them are going to do very well. They're going to be able to play the game of buy low, sell high and until they can't, and then they might lose everything. However... As we mentioned, the technology, the blockchain is very cool, and eventually governments around the world will start creating cryptocurrencies, but they will be tied to their economies. Then those cryptocurrencies will have some kind of intrinsic value that can be measured against other currencies, and they can be a value placed on them, and they can be traded as as currencies are traded now, because you can take your dollars and move them to yen or move them to euros or move them to, to pesos to, uh, for whatever reason you, you want, whether to speculate or whether to actually buy something in that other currency and then that other country. Does that make sense? Eh, if you want to argue it or whatever, just like gold, there will always be people who believe in it, but probably just like gold, it'll probably follow the inflation rate, which means... It's not really doing anything for you. But if it makes you feel good, and if you're good at trading, which is not an easy task, folks, <clears throat> I can't help you. I don't think I'll ever be good at trading. I've never even tried. Slide 31. The most profitable investment anyone can make is starting a business, folks. That That's the way to really create the biggest amount of wealth. It is also one of the riskiest investments anyone can make. Oh, you've heard the statistics. 50% of businesses fail in the first year. 80% of businesses fail in the first five years. 100% of businesses fail in the first 10,000. Nobody knows. They don't know. They're just guessing. The truth is that no one knows the failure rate of small businesses because no one, not even the IRS, knows how many small businesses there are. Another truth is that many small business owners often fail two or three or more times until they succeed. It's just innate in them. And there's a few people out there who say, you should all, everyone should be a business person. And that's, that's again, poppycock, because many of us just don't want that kind of stress. But you talk to entrepreneurs and other business owners, and, and they wouldn't have it any other way. It's, it's terribly difficult. Don't think, don't think, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of horror stories and, and you know, you maybe want to take introduction to business, maybe some of the other classes that we have, business 145 or something like that. Uh, but, uh, and then of course you want to get involved in these groups right here. Even if you have, don't even know what kind of business you want, you want to be around people who are part of that culture. We use the word inculcated. You want to just have it near you because it it's it's contagious <laughs> they rub off on you uh score san diego.score.org service corps of retired executives these people will 
try to scare you. You, what do you think you're doing? You're, you're never going to succeed. You can't be. And they kick out all the, all the people who are kind of waffling leave. And then they say, okay, let's get started. <laughs> that great group. Kiva, it's a peer-to-peer -peer lending organization, which could help get some cash for you that you might need. Axion San Diego. Now they were very, I haven't, I haven't gone to one of the things in years, but they were very active in San Diego and then it kind of died down. And if you went to their website, it took you up to the LA website, but now it's, it's back up and running. So they're an awesome, at least they used to be small business organization. And then you have to come to our Southwestern national city campus where we host the South San Diego small business development center. And folks, you just, there, many of the, 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 some of the like some of the presentations cost a little bit of money some most of them are free and you'll be around other people who are involved in business and you'll just it you, there are tremendous resources available don't try to go it alone there are certain landmines you could step on and these people will show you don't do that you know do this you know, and, and yeah, they want you to succeed why because small business is the backbone of our economy, not the huge corporations. They're, they're very important, don't get me wrong, but small business employs far more people and it's far more of our economy than, than, than people think it is, right? So you could be a part of it. Think about it. Now, <clears throat> I've gone over an hour, my apologies, but investment scams. Yeah, yeah, they're out there, folks. There are people who just have no... One of them is in the White House, soon to be gone, hopefully. Um, have you ever seen ads like these? Start your real estate empire with no money down. You, too, can take advantage of the tremendous opportunities now in the wide-open real estate foreclosure market. Or whatever. Just take our guaranteed surefire three-day real estate investment seminar for only $2,995. That will pay for itself in one month. You will be on your way towards riches behind your wildest dreams. Now, don't worry about burning that credit card, folks. I know you have a $3,000 limit on a credit card, but you have other credit cards, and you are going to pay off all those credit cards within a, two months. I guarantee it. And when that doesn't work, we will uh, we'll sell you, we'll let you mortgage your house, and we'll sell you the surefire five-day seminar for only $9,995 that is super exclusive. But when that doesn't work, you'll take the $25,000 two-week Hawaiian vacation seminar that is guaranteed. You think I could make a lot of money if I didn't have any ethics? All these people, they'll, they'll take your money, folks. This is one example that we show on the website in, in Canvas. A guy, you know, one of these real reality television folks, wants to teach you how to buy and sell real estate and become super wealthy for only $34,000. And um, yeah, so watch out, folks. The scams are, are out there. And uh, if it sounds too good to be true, yeah. <laughs> so bottom line, whew, finally, buy a house, make it your home. It should reward you well over the long term, both personally and financially. Learn the ropes regarding being a landlord. Now, here's a tip that I think is actually very good. Now, I didn't do this. I wish I had, but I didn't. Work as a property manager first before you buy your, your first rental property. Yeah, because then you'll know the ropes. You'll know what, uh, what you have to do and what you can't do and what you can do and what you expect. 
don't overextend yourself with too many properties. You know, leverage is a good thing and it's also a bad thing. Stay away from precious metals, gems, art, collectibles, unless you absolutely love it as a hobby first. And then it's, you know, it might even be lucrative. I have a friend of mine who buys and sells these uh, uh, vintage BMWs and he's done really, really well with it, but he knows how to fix them. That's the key. If you don't know how to fix them, the parts and the labor can just, phew. Cryptocurrencies, avoid. Go ahead, play the game. I wish you a lot of luck, but you're going to need it. And dream, think, plan about what kind of business you would offer. Work in the industry. Learn the ropes. Get help from the from the SCORE and the, the San Diego uh, Small Business Center. And maybe someday, yes? And that ends our discussion of investments. When we come back, we are ready for the final chapter where we'll discuss retirement planning and estate planning, uh, planning for your death. <laughs> Isn't that make sense to be the ultimate chapter? Yes. See you in our next chapter on retirement planning and estate planning.